Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more as well as full transcriptions of each podcast episode at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. And don't forget to check out the Writer Writer Pants on Fire Facebook page. Give me feedback, suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, and let me know if there's someone you would love to see as a guest. If you have specific questions, feel free to post them on the page and I will answer them on the podcast. This summer, I'm adding a co-host, fellow author Kate Carius Quinn. We'll be doing a series that focuses on hybrid and indie authors. If you're thinking of going the self-pub route, we've got authors who found success with six-figure sales, as well as authors who are just starting out on the road to indie publishing. Learn from them. Learn with us. When Skylar gets a glimpse of her future and she's with her arch-enemy Truman, as in romantically with him, she cannot let that happen. Trying to change the future means complicating the present, in, now, and when. A romantic dramedy with a sci-fi twist by Sarah Bennett Wheeler. On sale now. Kurt, first of all, you had your debut come out with source books. I think one of the first things I really want to talk about is the fact that you write humor, which can be a particularly difficult genre to market and to put out there. So can you talk a little bit about what it's like to write humorous YA and what that market is like? I don't know what that market is. I, I mm. just know it's all it's all I can write. Even if I'm writing a serious email to someone, I slide into this humorous thing. It's just kind of what comes naturally. I wrote horror, horror, not horror, horror. horror. Mm-hmm. horror. Uh, mm-hmm. I've written horror know, too, Kurt. <laughs> for, you know, three or four or five years when I was kind of learning to write, I really struggled with it because I, and it took me a long time to realize it's just not who I am. Mm. You know, I just naturally want to be funny, I guess. And Were you like the class clown in school? I was just really sarcastic and biting. That voice is always there. And, you know, I've toned that down, but I guess the the humor element still exists. Are you sarcastic to your children? Yes, in my students. And they'll say, I don't know whether to believe you right now. (laughs) Like, excellent. That's exactly what I thought. (laughs) I do not want you comfortable. You know, I wrote a failed... YA horror psychological cult novel that all these agents read it and no one wanted any part of it. Yeah, I'm just trying to be something I'm not. So, Mm. you know, it's like, I'm just going to kind of write in my own voice. But you did get agents to read your horror novel. So you must have had something there that they were seeing potential. What I had was a (laughs) really, really good query letter. I I learned a lot of rules about YA that I didn't know exist. One being, you really need more than one teenage character in it. And I was like, oh. Uh After uh, Don't Get Caught got picked up 
by my agent, she was like, well, let me see the other one. But she goes, yeah, that's terrible. That novel's terrible. We're, we're not going to tell that. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and thank you for being the one to just tell me flat out. Let's say that you had luck with horror. That would be extremely difficult because I feel like once you're a horror writer, right. you're going to be that. So if you were like, yeah, I have this great horror novel and let's say it gets published and does fairly well or even just mediocre, it'd be really hard to make the jump then and be like, and I also write humor. Right. You asked about the market for, for humor and in publishing The Scam List, I've, I've had to look at that. And there aren't a lot of books out there. And even at looking like at Amazon ads and categories, like I'm like, yeah, I don't even know where to put this book. <laughs> like, yeah, there aren't a lot of them out there. And then I get irritated when, you know, I start doing like, oh, what's the number one humor YA book? And it's Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And I'm like, <laughs> Bullshit. I'll say JK Rowling people really need to like, try to corner that market too. Right. Um, Harry Potter, I think is the top book in every category and Amazon. It's like yeah. books about pipe fitting. Oh, number one book is Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. You know, I look at the books and there aren't a lot out there, but I write it anyway, because it's, it's kind of what comes natural for me. And I also know that it's not that there's an audience begging for it, but when people have the book, like when I can get the book in people's hands, they're like, that was a lot of fun and really funny. And then people will call it like a palate cleanser. And I'm mm -hmm. like, that's absolutely fine for me. Yeah. And I think too, like I've been hearing a lot of people talk about, especially now with the world kind of exploding or imploding. Everything is just so negative right now, has been for a while. I've heard multiple people, readers saying, but also editors and people in the publishing world saying now's the time we need lighter reads we need funnier stuff the dark stuff like obviously i write very like issue driven and darker gritty edges and stuff like that and like right now that's the real world and i think people are looking for more escapism at the moment yeah i agree i also i wonder if the lack of having a big category for comedic ya is just that there hasn't been one big breakout book because I know there is an audience for that. My kids are middle grade. My oldest is 13. So he's starting to edge into YA, but they love funny books. There's a ton of it in middle grade and there is almost none of it in young adult. Like it's not like when you reach 13, you don't want funny books anymore. So I really think it's a missing chunk of the market. We have a need for this, but until a book breaks out, no one's really going to buy a ton of it. Right, right. It's always just been kind of my complaint. I think they would do really well if publishers would push them. I, I get it. Lots of teenagers and lots of teenagers who read specifically, like they want serious books and issue-driven books. And there's a huge need for that in a lot of ways. And it's a great way to address a lot of things that are going on in, in the world and in teenagers' lives. That's not all their lives are. I think a big part of being a teenager is just doing stupid things with your friends and mm -hmm. sitting around and having inane conversations and goofing on each other. And mm -hmm. there is a need for that sort of thing. Yeah. And I feel like there's probably reluctant readers out there too, who are like, Oh, I don't want to read this serious issue book. 
And I can say, because I was still working in the library when Kurt's first book came out, which I should I should say is called Don't Get Caught, and it's all about a prank war. It is hilarious, and I would put it in the hands very often of boys and reluctant readers, and sometimes the mix of both of those things, and it always worked really well as a good, light, fun read that they could read and be like, that was cool, and I enjoyed it. I want to talk a little bit about your experience with Don't Get Caught because you did have some success with it out of the gate. I mean, it got attention in some ways, like we were saying, just because it was a funny book and we had kind of, like Kate is saying, there hasn't been a book that was like this one. This one's funny. This is the funny book this year. Gordon Corman, you can always rely on to write a good, funny YA, but- he had kind of fallen off like in recent years, as far as like producing a book a year or in that category, age category. So anyway, I was using don't get caught in that way. Now, if you could talk a little bit about what your trajectory was then after don't get caught came out and what led you then to move to the idea of publishing it yourself. I got an agent for it pretty quickly And then in what uh, year was that? God, I guess it would have been 2015 because it came out in 2016. I think that sounds right. For all the editors who read it, they were like, I really love this. We're going to pass. And then (laughs) I've been there. (laughs) And then source books came along and, and the editor there just really liked it. She was like, thank God I'm reading a funny YA novel. I worked with Aubrey Poole at source books. They were really uh, behind the book and, and the book came out and it did well. The book has continued just to sell. But I think I've sold in the last four years, like 20,000 copies of that book I've sold. Which is a lot for anyone who doesn't know. That's a lot of books. That is. Yeah, to me, like, that is amazing. Like, I'm like, 20,000 people have bought some, you know, book I wrote that's just really filled with dick jokes. I'm like, see, people yeah. really uh. want this book. I finished that. That was done. And I want to write another one. Like I I know these people. I know where I can take another book of it. Carrie Sparks, my agent, I said, we contact them about me writing a sequel. And they came back and they're like, well, we want to see how this book is selling. Mm -hmm. It was infuriating. I understood it. But at the same time, I was like, you now want me to wait a year to write another book? Like that didn't make a lot of sense to me. But I also understood, you know, no, it's all about money. Like that ends up being the answer to every publishing question. I was like, well, I'm not going to sit around for a year. What else do I want to do? And I was like, well, I want to write a teen detective novel um, because really that's what I read. I read, you know, crime novels and detective novels and stuff. And then I started working on, I don't even know what it was at the time. I had characters I had Boone and Darby and I had them not liking each other really, but liking each other. Like I had a whole moonlighting David and Maddie from, you know, the eighties. Like, I love on. that show. Right. You are right. speaking my language. <laughs> I started messing with it and it was a, it was a detective novel or a mystery thing. But the problem was I didn't have a mystery for it. I had settings, I had relationship conversations, I had all of that stuff, but I didn't have a, a plot that I liked. Yeah, um, I'm not a big mystery reader, but I do find when I pick up a mystery that I do want there to be a mystery in it. Right, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you read a YA novel, you do expect there to be more than one teenager. So mm-hmm. 
<laughs> right around that time is when uh, Mindy tried to murder me. Uh, no, but I that think... sounds super like Mindy. It's what? very on brand. I, I do. And of course, Kurt, I want you to share the story, but I was almost the last person that Kurt spoke to on this planet. You are absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you tried. Well, Kate, here's what happened. I somehow tricked my way into being the Cincinnati Public Library System's writer in residence. Cool. Um, around in uh, like 2017. And as part of that job, I would do um, a podcast, much like this one. One Sunday, three and a half years ago, I interviewed Mindy. That evening, I ended up in the emergency room with a mystery illness that pretty much laid me up for, like in a lot of ways, like three years. About three um, years, yeah. It, it was just this bizarre, it was procedures and surgeries and everything. And I wasn't quote unquote normal until... This is really odd. I think today is the the anniversary of the final, now you're back to normal uh, <laughs> surgery I had. Like, I Whoa. think I drove up to Cleveland Clinic today, four years ago, for my final procedure. Um, and now here so I, I am. So I get to book in. I get to book in it all. Fate. Yeah, I'm tempting fate again, talking to Mindy on a podcast. So <laughs> in that time, like, I could barely write. Part of it was just PTSD in a lot of ways. Part of it was just being in the hospital. Part of it was all the meds I was on and mm -hmm. I think the depression I was dealing with, which and, and the anxiety. And I think a lot of people, you know, right now with the pandemic and stuff can relate to that. Like it's very hard to write and be creative when your life is in upheaval. And I had no idea. Like I had never been sick in my life and I had no concept of just how important your health is and, and, and your mental health. Like it's mm -hmm. given me, it gave me such, and it gives me such like greater empathy for my students, you know, when they're mm -hmm. like, I just get anxious and I'm like, Oh, okay. Like I fully understand what you're talking about now. But somehow in that time, at some point I decided I'm not going to, why am I making this a detective novel? I don't have a, a mystery for it. I'm going to make them con men. That's what I'm going to do. He's going to be a con artist. And then the book just came out real easily for me. I sent it to my agent and she was thrilled with it. She was like, oh, this is ready to go. I sent it out and it was like one after the other. There were, all the publishers were like, we love this. Uh, this isn't for me. Like my past history, like sales history, people want books like this. Carrie was like, I know there's nothing. I don't know what to tell you. She was like, I am sho as shocked as you are that, that no one wants this. And source books, that really just irritated me. I've sold 20, you know, 20,000 copies of this little book and continues to sell. I'm surprised too, because I've generally heard good things about source books and them being very supportive of their authors. So you must have pissed them off or. <laughs> <laughs> well, the editor left. Wait, my editor left. And I think that was. Oh, a, a Oh, yes. You, well, yes, yep. you were orphaned. Well, that's that's the whole story right there. For my listeners, if you don't know, when uh, you have your editor in your house, and generally your editor is your best cheerleader, your editor is going to, in some ways, almost acts as your representative within that higher echelon of the publishing house. And if your editor... Because they picked you. Love like, you. They yeah, they picked you. Yeah, they picked you. Yeah, and they yeah, are... They pick like, pulled you out of the slush pile. They hung their own 
pat on you and your success. And editors right. leave houses all the time. Editors hop houses pretty consistently. Yeah. And mm-hmm. when that happens, usually their authors are then left behind at the house without an editor and they're called orphans. And you just kind of get farmed out and you off to someone that has room on their list. And that person, you know, might not like what you write, might, might not be into you and your style. And yeah, I mean, it's a really, really well-known story in the publishing industry. Well, and it's yeah. funny I mean, the way you put that, because when other writers who were there found out who I'd been given to, and this person's gone, so it doesn't even matter. They were like, oh, that's not going to work. And I'm like, mm-hmm. why? And they're like, that, that editor does not really have a sense of humor. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, and so, oh that's, yeah. that's a bad match then, yeah. Uh, my agent, the editor uh, texted her and said, or emailed her and said, I want to talk to you on the phone about this book. Mm. So you were hopeful. No, no. She said, it, he said, I want to explain myself I can do it better just over the phone. And he, and he got on the phone. He goes, I love this book. He goes, I would buy this book in a minute. I will buy this book for my kids. I would hand it out and tell everyone to read this book. But this is not a book that a kid would read 10 or 12 times. And that's mm-hmm. what we want. Honestly, that was kind of a big wake up moment for me. And I was like, if that's the bar, I can never clear that bar. I don't read the book that a kid holds to his or her heart you know, and, and 40 years down the line, they're like, I love, 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 you know, this. And, you know, it's not like a tree grows in Brooklyn or whatever those books are. Nobody knows what book is going to strike a chord with what kid. That's bullshit, man. My 13 year old loves Stuart Gibbs has reread all of his mm-hmm. books. I always ask him, what do you like about books? And they're always like, they're like fast plotting and they like funny. Yes. And middle grade has a plethora of authors that only write humor or have, you know, there's a huge market for that in middle grade. And then Mm -hmm. suddenly you hit YA and it really is just a black hole. Those kids didn't Mm -hmm. stop liking that. The products simply aren't there. And I do think it's a shame, but I also do think that marketing comes into it. I really think that publishers don't know how to market a humor book to an audience. They don't know who to sell it to. Mm-hmm. Not, no, specifically to an older audience. So it's like for middle grade kids, they're like, yay, fart jokes. Here's a guy in a diaper, right? And right. that is, that's funny. But like Kurt's book is full of dick jokes and they're hilarious. But they can't be like, hey guys, dick joke book, right? So why can't I, they target the people who watch, um, what's it called? American Vandal. Is that what it's called yeah. on Netflix? But how do you produce something that like a commercial that says dick jokes now in books, right? I mean, that's, you know, you know as well as I do though, that any type of reference like that, it's already dated. I mean, I bet a handful of people listening to this right now already Googled American Vandal. Like what the hell is that? And now they're like, Oh, this looks funny. Five minutes ago on Netflix, it's a flash in the pan. And I'm not saying that it wouldn't be a good marketing strategy. I think it's a great marketing strategy. I just think publishers, Netflix doesn't have to worry about being banned. Netflix doesn't have to worry about backlash from librarians and parents. I mean, they kind of Yeah, do. but being banned would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like you've yeah. said it many times, like, oh, please ban me. I keep trying so, to get banned. 
I mean, but I don't know. I get it. Like, I, I think know. honestly, the problem is marketing people are underpaid and overworked yeah. and they don't have, yeah. you know, the resources to look for a new avenue to open up. It's not like publishers are evil, big jerks. But this is definitely one of the places where it kind of fails to serve a specific audience. And I've heard the same thing about, you know, there's more of a need for YA that skews younger and that's not there. It goes to money, right? Like the marketing thing, the marketing people are like, we know what we can sell that will Mm -hmm. sell. Mm -hmm. And we know how to sell those books. Why work really hard to find how to sell a different, you know, something we don't normally put out there. They already have a template on how to make something be successful. Why remake the wheel? They don't have to. For a single book, for one book, for for one guy. Once that happened and we ran out of people, I was just sitting there. I mean, it took me a couple of months. I was like, what am I going to write now? If people like it, but they don't want to try to sell it, what am I going to possibly write? Plus, you have a book that you know is good. That's kind of what pushed me into self-publishing. And I got to that point because like you said, it was like, I know I have readers who want me to put something else out like this. I think it was a combination of things. One was I wasn't sick anymore and Mm -hmm. my head had cleared. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in there, I listened to like one or two self-help books. And I think that was a combination of it. And I had to get past this ingrained prejudice you know, self-published books or indie books are, are crap. I just started researching, 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 you know, indie publishing. I was like, okay, what would this project look like? I contacted my agent and I was like, I've kind of come to a big decision. And I told her and she was like, this is a great idea. She was like, you should absolutely do this. Mm-hmm. The book needs to be out there. It will sell. I work well with projects. And this was a new project for me to work on. and Right, because now you had to learn how to be a publisher. Not a writer, but the publisher. And the marketing department. And the cover designer. Right. And, I mean, and it was a great project. And, and it, it was really good for me. Like one of the positives of, of COVID. Because mm-hmm. suddenly March hits and, you know, I'm not at school every single day. I'm at home. So I have plenty mm-hmm. of time to kind of work on this stuff. That's suddenly how I ended up self-publishing. Make your pages look professional with vellum. Margins, headers, page numbering, font, line spacing, all happen automatically with every book you create. Generate eBooks for Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo, and others, or deliver a beautiful print book to your readers. Visit Trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. Vellum. Create beautiful books. Skylar Finch can't stand Truman Alexander. So when her phone starts sending her notifications from the future, and it looks like she's with Truman, as in romantically, she goes on a quest to fix it. But changing the future means complicating the present. In Now and When, a romantic dramedy with a time travel twist by Sarah Bennett Wheeler. Finding your way means accepting that life doesn't come with a roadmap and that people, like glitchy phones, are full of surprises. Now and When is available now.
but you knew that you had the product. So the writing part was done. You had to learn everything else more or less. So like, how did you go about doing that? How did you go about learning basically everything there is to know and all the different things that you have to do in order to have like success at this? Yeah, I'm really good at researching stuff. I can go right down rabbit holes, as they say, and then not come up for a long time. I asked both of you a lot of questions. Um, I ended up on the Facebook, what is it? 20 books books to 50K. And I would just, I'd be like, my writing time today, all of my reading time today, I'm just going to read posts. Like I'm just going to read and read and read. And then such a great resource. It's a fantastic resource and it's got great rules. You're not allowed to advertise your book. So it ends up being about the industry, quote unquote, right? Um, Yeah. And it's very selling focused in a way that's very straightforward. How to make money selling your books. There are a lot of people on there who are making a very good living. And they're more than willing to explain to you how they did it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where I think the publishing industry could learn so much from what some of those people do. It just kind of all started coming together. But at times I felt like I had you know, 10 or 15 plates up in the air. And I was like, oh my mm-hmm. God, how am I ever possibly going to make this happen? It was a great process. I learned I learned a lot of things. I made a few mistakes. The book's out there. And now I've got to kind of learn this other world of Amazon ads. And mm-hmm. I'm going to have to. Like, you know, people are always like, how is the book selling? And and well, before I never knew, right? With, with right. Sourcebook, mm-hmm. I had to wait six months. Now- right. Now I know, which is a positive and a negative. So like I So now you have to tell those people, mind your own damn business. <laughs> Correct. Correct. So um I like being transparent. On a selfish level, it makes me more comfortable with things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, even when I was sick, I would be like, okay, this is what's going on with my rectum this week. And people are like, <laughs> <laughs> you really did. I was like, yeah, I've got a hole in my rectum and no one knows why, or an additional hole, I suppose. And they're like, <laughs> it made me more comfortable with it. With book sales, it was like, now I can know everything about it and I'm, I'm going to be mm-hmm. transparent about it. With indie publishing, you know your numbers. Like mm-hmm. you know what you've sold in a day if you want to know that. And so how are sales going? In the first week, and this would count pre-sales, like I think I sold 300 copies of the scam list in like the first week. But I was like, okay, I'm really thrilled with this. One of the things I've learned is I can't, I had to set a rule for myself a couple, like a week and a half ago that it was, I am only going to check my my sales on Fridays. The first week was like, oh, I've sold 300 copies and I felt really good. And then Friday came, uh, this would be two days ago, and I looked it up and I sold three copies last week. And I went, mm-hmm. okay, this means I need to start learning to advertise. Like that's 20 books to 50K thing. It's like, no, you've got to stay on top of this. I can't rely on publishers weekly getting librarians to buy my book. But in a way I can, because I think I've lucked into getting a Publishers Weekly review, right? Um, Not lucked into. Right. But I went through that process and it's like, cross your fingers and all of that. But I think that's going to happen. Um, right. But I mean, I just want to say it's not lucky. It's not like it's a draw to meet your book and they decide whether they want to review it or not, if they like it and think it's worthy of review. 
I tend to just like try to be as humble as possible and just <laughs> want to yeah. Of course, they're going to review it. That's in my dark heart. It's a job, but it's kind of a job I like because, again, it's a project. Yalsa's teens top 10 thing, like, don't get caught, ended up on that list a few years ago. I've got to figure out how that happened because I didn't have anything to do with it. And then I just did a ton of research and found out who's in charge of that. And I'm going to contact them. And they were like, oh, yeah, here are the advisors running those teen reading groups. And they gave me the list. And I'm like, I'm just going to send them copies of the book, like to give to their kids. Indie publishing is making your own luck. I'm kind of good at going, okay, if it's all on me, how far can I take this? Not everything's going to stick, but something will, hopefully. Are you feeling a little boxed in by the pandemic now and there not being a lot of events where you could sell your book? I guess I'm just realistic about it. If I thought about it too much, yeah, because I can hand sell books. Mm -hmm. Like. I mean, if Mindy and I were sitting next to each other at a table and we've been close at a table, like we would sell a shit ton of books because we just have those personalities and, and, and I have, I hate you guys. I'm so bad at hand selling. I hate it so much. We can chill. I know. I know Mindy can, I've sat next to Mindy at a table and actually (laughs) we did an event. What was it? Oh, it was Sia in Tennessee. Mindy had this long line and I had like one kid and a kid from Mindy's line looks over at me and he says, got to be hard being next to her, huh? Like, <laughs> I have no problem with just, and it's from teaching high school, yeah. just kids walking by and I'll just call them over. I'm like, come here. Like, and I also know my people in a lot of ways. Like I know how to talk to different types of kids. Like mm. that's a lot of what it is. I think that's what works for me, too, is just I've been in front of kids for so long and interacted with all different types of kids and librarians, too. Like, I got an in with them. And so, yeah, it's all of those elements that I put in in the public school system, like, finally paying off. Right. So you're saying that I should get a job in a high school to work on my I think you should try to, I think you should substitute. You can go substitute and uh, come back and let me know how that goes. (laughs) Call you crying, Mindy. Why did you tell me to do this? Put on your big girl panties and you go back in there. <laughs> and eventually, learn how to talk to those kids. Yeah, thinking about those those cons being or those festivals being canceled. Yeah, it it does hurt in some ways because I know it works for me. It's like the one thing I know I can count on. Ohio Anna was like the first one I ever did. And, and I walked in, I was all excited and they showed me my table and there were like 10 books there. Do you have more books? And they're like, no, we, we have 10 books, you know, you're for, and I just, I, I, in the back of my head, this isn't going to last long. And I went with the humor aspect and, and I did, I sold out those books really fast and I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll at least talk to people. Same vein then, because I know that you do have paperbacks available of this scam list as an indie, those first 300 in your debut week with that, were you selling ebooks or were you selling physicals? Physical books. Really? Well, probably 75% of them are physical books. Mm-hmm. I don't know if YA generally sells mostly paperbacks. Well, Is that I mean, that's, that's a question because I know that my numbers from my trad books 
I sell four times more physical copies than I do eBooks. Yeah. However, that's where things get like a little bit gray and a little bit fuzzy in the indie world. Typically in the indie world, you're moving eBooks. So I don't know, Kate, do you have any thoughts on that? Like why would a YA humor novel be selling physical copies over an eBook? Well, because he was marketing them to his traditional audience who want physical books. Now, I would say as he starts advertising, he's going to want to maybe target those indie readers a little bit more, um, which is where you'd probably want to make sure your ebook is priced. Partially one of the reasons that traditional sells way more physical books is that they have made a decision deliberate decision to price their ebooks very high, just Mm -hmm. almost the exact same price, sometimes even higher, or maybe just a little bit lower than the paper copy. And so most Mm -hmm. people look and they're like, well, if I'm going to pay $11.99 and get either a physical book or get an ebook, so they want to push people into paper, they don't want paper to die. Obviously, traditional has access to being on the shelves at Barnes and Noble, which is huge. (laughs) You know, we all know how big that is to have that order from Barnes and Noble and have them pick up however many of your books. And, you know, if they put it on a front shelf or if they put it on a table with Indies not having access to Barnes and Noble like that, we sell eBooks and we can price Mm -hmm. them very competitively. And the traditional space has sort of seeded the bargain books to us, except for when they want to do sales. See, I think when I priced my book, I was just going with, well, what, what was don't get caught sold at? Yeah. You know, because that's what worked, but you're Mm -hmm. right. I probably do need to like shift my thinking on that, especially with the ebook version, because it's like, yeah, if that's going to be the, the target and they're reading more ebooks. Okay. That's very, very helpful actually. Don't overprice your ebook because, because yeah, if you're pricing it like a traditional author, you're basically saying to people, don't buy the ebook, buy the paperback. But you don't want to say that to your audience. No. You want to say, buy the ebook. It's a great deal. But if you prefer to read on paper, here it is. See, you've actually helped me in this podcast, whereas. Whereas uh, four years ago, Mindy tried to kill me on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> really, you guys have a good partnership in a lot of ways yeah. right there. Right? Yeah. Well, well, it's not over yet. We're not done I'm yet. Always, I'm, I may still, I'm just maybe trying to draw you in closer, make you, you know, get your guard down so I can go into the final kill. Uh, well, oh, I mean, you know great. me. I'm always looking for the next rectum to target. So. <laughs> well, I don't have one now, so you're good. <laughs> you're off my list. I completely annihilated your rectum. <laughs> so I'm wondering then, Kurt, when you do go into making ads... Where are you going to put them? Like, are you looking at Amazon? Are you looking at Facebook? Because I know Kate dabbles a little bit in both. And um, the Amazon in particular, I know it's a bear. I fooled around with Amazon ads for a little bit. And I, I was getting clicks, but not sales. And then I think, oh, and now you have me thinking, oh, no, this is just your ebook is probably possibly priced too high. That could be it. Who knows? We've got to learn all of that stuff. And then Amazon... And again, uh, through 20 books to 50K, they have groups you can join on running Amazon ads. And mm-hmm. 
just a whole science that I really feel like, okay, that's going to be my next deep dive is, is into all of that and marketing it. Because mm-hmm. when, I, when I go with authors who write things that are funny or funnier, I don't really get a lot of like clicks or impressions, almost like people mm-hmm. looking for it. But uh, teen reluctant readers usually gets me pretty decent return, like, oh. like at least mm-hmm. clicks. And I think it's going to be finding that sweet spot. Email me. We'll, we'll talk more in depth about <laughs> all, the, all the ways of Amazon and Facebook. They are both extremely difficult. There is tons of writing about them and how to use them and how to bid and how to target. And there's lots of different ways to do it. And I'm still learning. I think almost everyone is always still learning. I just did an Amazon 30-day ad challenge um, a couple months ago through a Facebook group. And I learned some new stuff. And it's an ongoing process. And they also, of course, are always changing things, which then you have to like adjust everything to go with it. I've done actually okay with Amazon. I've never, like I know I've read a bunch of things with people saying, oh my gosh, I've poured hundreds of dollars into Amazon and, you know, seen no returns. And I've always come out ahead with my Amazon oh, ads. Huge. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, it helps because I my books are in KU. So that helps when you're in Kindle Unlimited. So you're getting paid reads. And a lot of people on Amazon are looking for those Kindle Unlimited books. So that helps. And then Facebook, I think it's harder. It's much, much harder to track whether your clicks are leading to sales. I know that some of your ads on Facebook, Kate, they get a lot of interaction. I don't know if they lead to sales, which of course is what you want to see, but they do get interaction. They get likes, they get uh, comments. So, I mean, and that's something. I mean, some of them are wackadoo comments. I made an ad that I've been running for maybe five months months now. Yeah. Oh, has it been that long? Gosh. Yeah, I made um, a GIF actually using a program called Pixaloop. And it like lets you animate pictures. So I I used stock photography. And so I found a stock photo that was really good. For Facebook, that's the way, best way to go is to find a stock photo that sort of captures a mood or a feeling. Because oh. Facebook wants people to be scrolling through the feed and not to immediately be like, oh, this is an ad. Like they want it to look like this is just another friend on your feed. That's why they have a thing about putting a lot of print on an ad. You can't have a lot of text on it or they'll reject it. And so I found this one. It's like my book, the books are fantasy that I'm advertising. And um, it's about a girl who ships into a dragon. And so I use some of my photoshopping skills and I added some like like she had bare shoulders and so I added some like scales like iridescent sort of scales and then I went put that picture into Pixaloop and I animated it so it has like little like sparklies and movements and it looked awesome I am awesome and I'm very skilled in <laughs> I actually it's it's I think it's that input thing where I can like go down a rabbit hole like I can just spend so much time on Pixaloop just like playing with all the little settings and tweaking and tweaking and tweaking forever and it's fun to me and it's like relaxing and so it ended up looking super pretty and I put it up as an ad and people love it and so since then I've tweaked 
like my headlines and the wording around it, but the picture stays the same. But I think at first, whatever the headline was, it wasn't immediately apparent that it was a book I was selling. No, I don't know. It was it, like, you started out, you started out by saying, cause your character supposedly has like some sort of spinal issue. And so yes. you said something like, Oh, here all my life. I thought that my, scoliosis was because of like whatever and then it's like it turns out i'm a dragon but people yeah people wait because they don't either there's just not a high like reading comprehension level or they only read yeah. the first line but like so many of the comments are like prayers feel better oh, honey. <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. it's just like <laughs> She has dragon scales. <laughs> and it's like in the gif, it's like she has dragon scales and blue hair and it like is clearly not human. And everybody is like, oh honey, we're thinking of you. you yes. Know, or like there's a lot of like, oh, you're so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the comments definitely seem there's like a couple comments from one person who I think was drunk. So honestly, you're supposed to hide those comments, and I just haven't because <laughs> I think they're Funny. entertaining. And someone recently left another comment that was like, I do not understand half the comments here. <laughs> In a perfect world, all the comments would be like, oh, I've read this book and it's amazing. Read right. this series. But none of them are like that. But uh, No, they're like, you're really pretty and we hope you feel better soon. And yeah. like, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yay, thanks for leaving a comment. The, the Facebook algorithms... You know don't what know you what the comments do. say. They just know I'm getting comments. So to them, right. they're like, oh, people like this ad. So they right. keep, you like, know, they show it more. Obviously, what you need to do, though, now is to create, like, a GoFundMe for this Dragon Girl's spina bifida problem. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because yeah. everybody wants to help. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, are they going to put their wallets where their mouths are? Or are they just going to stay with thoughts and do is the people who don't understand you should respond with if you really want to help me and then leave the leave another link to the book like yeah, yeah. <laughs> read the book i wrote try my book yeah try, try my book about my yeah, experience shot. oh my god yeah yeah so but you're um, right but the, i think it's interesting though you're right in that even if people aren't comprehending what's going on here they're still interacting with the ad. The ad is performing well. People are clicking on it. People are interacting with it. And that only improves the visibility level of it because Facebook looks at that and says, oh, people like this. Right. And I personally, I mean, I don't see a lot of people doing the GIF ads. I'll see them occasionally, but I, I, I don't see them a whole lot. And But I personally think they're very effective because when you're scrolling through your Facebook feed, I feel like that little bit of movement catches your eye. You know, with the new thing you can do where you make your photos 3D or whatever. Have you seen that? Yes, but I don't know how yeah. to do that. I don't know how to do that either. But um, just as far as catching your eye, when I see someone, even if it's a picture of a teacher, and they're like, back to my classroom in a week, whatever. And it's just a picture of, you know, socially distanced desks. Because mm -hmm. that picture shifts as I scroll it catches my eye. So I think that you're right about right. the GIF, GIF ads. I think or that's like cats, one. right? Isn't that like how cats are? Like you can like use a laser pointer and they'll run after it. Like movement is like what catches their eye. We're basically like. Yes. 
I mean, you could also just or make an cats. ad with cats that have some sort of like respiratory issue and just hope <laughs> that. And you can see, you could make a video of them like trying to chase the laser and like not quite <laughs> able to. And um, then just put your book ad in there and you're gold. Or the GoFundMe. Just just give us just give me money to help the cats. Cats forget cats even with- selling books at that point. Indoor yeah. cat, cats with allergies. Cats that are allergic to cats. <laughs> they can't have any point. friends. Will you oh be my, my gosh. friend? That's what you need. Cats that are allergic to cats. And then the the catchphrase is, Will you be my friend? Click below. Okay, if this is going to be our con, we should probably stop talking about it. Kurt, why don't you tell us where people can find you online, your site, your social media links, and where people can find the scam list? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm at Kurt Dynan on Twitter, and I barely do anything there, so that's not helpful. Um, (laughs) Mostly my website, uh, which I kind of overhauled, is at Kurt Dash Dinan D I N A N and Kurt is with a K dot uh, com. Actually, you get like there are three prequel stories to the scam list you can get for free on there, um, which is like a nice introduction to kind of what the book would be. So you can get that on my website, and then um, yeah, the scam list is available in like any sort of online retailer. Uh, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all of that. Um, and that's my teen con artist book that I don't have like uh, good qualifying titles for. I always just like, it's like better call Saul with teenagers, but that doesn't really I like work. That. I know. Right. Like older people would totally get that. That's what it is. Oh, I don't know. I think you could use it. I think it'll work. Writer, writer, pants on fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.